and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Aran Gupta and our guest today is Robert Peeti. Robert is a founder of Liquid Stock and possesses more than 20 years of experience in structuring and executing private stock financing transactions. Prior to Liquid Stock, Robert was a founder of VSL Partners, a venture fund that provides financing to shareholders in leading venture-backed private companies. Robert pursued an undergraduate degree in business from George Washington University and an MBA from the University of Chicago. He also has more than 25 years of wealth management advisory experience. Join me as we explore how Robert is enabling liquidity for stock options issued by private companies, taxation in California and its potential implications for investors, liquid stocks expansion plans, his love for the trombone and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. How are you and where are you calling from? I'm very happy to be here and great to spend the time with you. And um, I'm just in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, wow. Is it hot out there in San Francisco right now? You know, it's, um, it, uh, I, I had grown up in, in, in the Northeast, in the New York area. Um, and the, the weather out here is just very different. So if you're, if you're inland very far, it's really hot. But if you're, if you're up near the coast, it's, uh, it's pretty temperate. Well, I hope you're near the coast then. Yeah, I am near the ghost. <laughs> <laughs> okay, diving into the questions, right? For our listeners who might not know about your career, could you provide an overview and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think um, I think a future in, in finance was always in the cards for me. Um, my, 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 my father had been in, in finance his whole career and kind of taking his lead. Um, you know, I, I knew that was a field for me and studied that in, in, in college and, and also at, at, at Booth. And, it, you know, kind of interesting, I, I was always on that path. And dur- during my, um, you know, summer, during my two years in business school, decided to try something very different and joined a company called Sprint for the summer and, and literally wrote, wrote business plans. Um, good experience, but also confirmed my desire and interest to, to stay in finance. Um, after business school, I uh, interned at a company that's part of Deutsche Bank now, and uh, you know, Bankers Trust Company, and had the opportunity to to move through all these different departments uh, in that organization, and really settled in to, to not just an investment group, um, but an investment group focused on providing services to individuals, and and, and that really really struck a chord for me. Um, you know, rather rather than dealing with with people that are that are in it for their careers, um, you know, working with people where you could see the impact of your work and and, and develop strong and 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 lasting lasting relationships. Awesome. So, can you talk to me a bit more about Liquid Stock and what the fund does? Yeah. So, so, so Liquid Stock we're, we're organized as a as a venture fund, and we 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 do one thing and one thing only, which is work with with entrepreneurs and provide liquidity backed by the value and shares that they have in the enterprises that they're that they're building you know about five or six years ago um maybe a little bit longer you know the the whole market for direct secondary transactions you know the the purchase of private shares um, by other funds and individuals really really started to grow you know the, the liquid strategy actually actually predates that we provide really an alternative to folks selling shares in attractive private companies. 
And it, it appeals to people that really have a strong belief that the enterprise will continue to grow uh, and value will continue to increase. And they just, they just really kind of know deep down that, wow, whatever price I sell at today, when I, when I look back years from now, it's going to seem like a really low price. <laughs> um, so we, we provide financing, you know, secured by the value of those shares. So if you, if you look at it and compare it to kind of an analogy of, of what's available to people that have value and equity positions in, in the public markets, if you want to sell your shares, there's a liquid market to do that. If you don't want to sell your shares, there are traditional, you know, banks and brokerage firms and others that will lend against that position. And, 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 and we're that, we're that financing type solution for the, for the private markets. That does sound a very interesting concept because you're providing mobility and liquidity to people who are taking on the risk, right? But while you're doing this, how do you maintain your own liquidity, profitability and risk thresholds? Yeah, yeah. And, and when you, it's very interesting because if you, if you look at the different use cases for the type of financing we provide, uh, it falls into two broad categories. Um, one, one is for liquidity, um, you know, and, and as we briefly discussed, you know, people that don't want to sell their shares but have a lot of you know uh, locked up value you know we we offer we offer an alternative and the second is for individuals that have significant positions um but they're, but they're but they're in the form of options and, and 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 options are are just very tax inefficient so if we look at those use cases um you know we'll start with option exercise so, you know, if somebody's got a large option position in a, in a private company, you know, they clearly have time to wait until there's a future liquidity event. Um, and then they can exercise those options and, and, and pay their taxes. Unfortunately, with the most predominant type of option out there, all of the gains that are in those options up until the exercise, you know, are, are, are taxes compensation income. So if you look, take a state like California, um, you know, that tax rate can exceed 50%. When, when you add everything in. So, you know, half of all the, the, the benefit that's been created all, you know, over time, um, goes, goes to pay taxes. You know, the, the way you work around that is to exercise your options early. Because once you exercise your options, you become a shareholder and you establish, and so, so you're an owner now and, and you establish your tax basis. And then future gains from that point in time are taxed at long-term capital gains tax rates. Right, which are which are much much lower than fifty percent all in. It's about you know thirty two thirty three percent if you're looking at at California. And when I first came to this business, um, I was trying to solve this problem for clients of mine in the Bay Area. Um, and the advice is always, hey, if you believe your company is going to continue to grow, you know, exercise your options now. You know, establish your basis. You'll save a fortune in tax. And the answer I would get back more often than not was. Hey, you know, that's pretty straightforward advice. I get it. It makes sense, you know, but I've got a million options, you know, with a dollar strike price and I can exercise today at $5. I don't have the money. Um, and it just dawned on me, there's such a big tax arbitrage here that, you know, there should be a way to structure something to attract capital and help the entrepreneur meet their goals um, because there's a big spread there. So, you know, in, 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 in doing our type of deal with individuals, um, we're, we're able to, to meet our return targets to keep our investors happy. So we have capital available to invest while at the same time 
still providing a significant tax benefit for ultimately the the option holder and and shareholder. So it's, it's it's really kind of a kind of a win win situation. So both parties do well if the companies continue to appreciate. The it's very similar with liquidity. So you know if you think about somebody who wants to put a million dollars in the bank today for for whatever reason, you know, or, you know they want to buy you know folks want to buy a home, they want to diversify, they want to invest in other things. Well, in California with the high tax rates you have to sell more than a million dollars to net back to a million. You've got to sell 1.32 million. So essentially the government's getting some of that equity, right? You know, you compare that to, to a transaction with us, you know, we, we provide, the fund provides the million dollars. Um, it's not taxable. You know, we, we get a little of that equity in, in the deal, you know, you know get, getting to our economics in the deal, but it's typically quite a bit less than the equity the government's getting. The benefit to the option holder or shareholder in this case is they don't have to sell the shares to raise the million dollars. So they keep the upside on those shares, right? Minus the cost of capital. So if the company continues to appreciate and and do really well, they do better than selling today. Tell me a bit more about the regulation part of it, right? I would, this just seems like a very non-conducive structure for people who are with the risk takers who want to help others innovate, right? Has there been, in your opinion, any push to make the options track structure more attractive for early employees of startups? Or do you see people migrating out of the California state and moving to other states that have a more taxable, more favorable taxable structures? Yeah, so a couple of things there. You know, I, I think it would be difficult to change how you know options are structured. And, and, and inherently, they, they just are tax inefficient. There are different types of options, um, non-qualified stock options, incentive stock options. Incentive stock options have a, have a lower tax burden if, if, you know, if certain thresholds are met, but they're very limited. And in, in, you know, companies are limited um, in, the, in the amount that they can grant to their employees. Now, clearly, tax rates, um, the difference between uh, income tax rates and long-term capital gains tax rates, you know, that spread can widen, that spread can, can narrow. You know, certainly the value proposition of what we provide, you know, is 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 smaller as that tax as those tax rates you know come 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 together. But it's just you know, options are inherently tax inefficient relative to to folks you know holding their shares. Um, the, the, you know, the second part of your question, you know, ha, have I seen people moving to lo- to lower tax states? Uh, the, the the answer is absolutely. And it really, it's not just driven by, by, by the pandemic and, and work from home and, and other things. Um, California is a very high tax state. You get a lot for it. Um, but the fact is, you know, na- na- neighboring Nevada has got a zero percent you know, <laughs> state tax. And, you know, so I, I, over the years have seen many people, um, move to Nevada, move to Texas, move to, to other, other, other tax free states. It's a, it's not an easy move, by the way. You know, California Franchise Tax Board is, is very aggressive, but yeah, we, we do work with a lot of people um, that 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 are in the process of uh, you know of moving to a lower tax state. Do you think your professional background in asset management helped you as you went about setting up Liquid Stock, or this was more born out of passion and an impactful opportunity that you saw? Yeah, um, you know, I, I I think my interest in being a, a wealth advisor for individuals, and in particular when I when I moved to to the Bay Area. Yeah, over 20 years ago, working with entrepreneurs, that, that really set the stage for the creation of what we're providing today at 
at Liquid Stock. Um, it really came about. I was trying to solve a problem um, for entrepreneurs. And, you know, if, if you look at the wealth management business today, um, you know, many, many firms, um, you know, have have put a lot of emphasis in just the recent past on developing relationships with entrepreneurs and and helping them, you know, with, with the goal of building a relationship, providing good, solid advice and, you know, ultimately providing wealth management services post liquidity event. But if you go back you know, to the mid late nineties, um, that, that really wasn't the case. Um, there, there weren't many organizations that were focused on dealing with the problems and challenges entrepreneurs face when their companies are still private. And Montgomery securities was, was the group that, that it brought me out to, to, to San Francisco. And, um, you know, their, their focus was on a, was on a, on a kind of a, a holistic solution for entrepreneurs. The, the, the premise being that, you know, it's difficult for entrepreneurs to parse out their individual lives from that of their businesses. And the, the, the way to build a relationship and add value is to address both at the same time. So, you know, be, being in wealth management and asset management um, really set the stage to, 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 to find this, uh, you know, challenge that uh, entrepreneurs face um, and really work hard at, at finding a solution, um, you know, that, that helps them, you know, accomplish their goals. So what have been some of the biggest challenges and learnings that you have come, that your biggest challenge in learning as you have scaled liquid stock? Yeah, it's um, it's been a long time in development, and you know my, my my first fund doing this was was back in 1999 2000. Um, you recall that's just before the, the the internet bubble bursting, but you know I I, I would say the idea and, and and the application you know was was easily a decade ahead of its time, and the biggest the biggest challenges at that point after doing all the structuring and building the business and, you know, getting capital and, and all of that was convincing people that it actually works. <laughs> it, you know, it works from a securities law perspective. It, it works from a tax and accounting perspective and it just makes sense for people. And um, so that's really been the, that's been the big challenge. It, it, it's a challenge that continues today in the last five or six years. Um, there, there have been more entrants into this niche market um, which from my perspective, I, I actually welcome because it helps increase awareness. And, you know, if, if there's just one person out there with a great solution, you can say, why aren't others doing this? But now it's a, it, it's, it, it's a fast growing niche business and uh, more, more people are learning about the benefits and, and not just individuals. It's, it's the companies themselves. Well, what is a company, but a collection of individuals focused on a goal, but, um, you know, companies are, are coming to this because they're working really hard to attract and retain the best employees and, you know, providing interim liquidity has become a way to do that. And in fact, you see many companies, um, you know, running periodic liquidity programs where their share repurchases on an annual basis or some, some basis. And, you know, so there's a recognition that, you know, um, helping employees solve problems and providing liquidity and other things is a, is a way to, to attract and retain the best. So the biggest challenge over time is has really been education and and getting the word out and and continually to push on broader acceptance for the, these types of solutions. I'm curious, at what stage do generally company approach you? Are we talking as like Series A, B, or like post IPO? When do you see most traction from companies? 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's a bit of a balancing act um, because you could make the argument if you look at it from the option holders' perspective. Given the way we we structure our transactions, there's really no additional personal risk to working with us as opposed to holding on to your options, even though it's tax inefficient, right? Um, until there's a liquidity event. So there, there's an argument there that you want to do this as early as possible um, because that the quicker you do it. The, the less it costs um, in terms of taxes to, to exercise your options and become a shareholder. Um, but, you know, quite frankly, there's not a lot of capital available, uh, you know, to, to do this type of transaction in an earlier stage company where there's, where there's, where there's more underwriting and, and investment risk, right? So there's, there's a bit of a push and pull. I, I would say the, the, the sweet spot is, you know, typically companies – that and there are always exceptions. Um, typically, companies that are in their Series C, Series D rounds, where the companies have matured a point, matured to a point where they, you know, they, they've got a, a good amount of, um, of of revenue. So, kind of a you know, you know, add or close to a hundred million in revenue, and you know, good growth rates and good margins, and you know, you know, top one or two players in their field, and, and good venture backing. So it, it, it's kind of, you know, mid to mid late stage is, is the best time to do it. Interestingly, um, it gets very challenging to do these transactions and structure a deal that works for both parties when the companies are on the doorstep of a liquidity event, right? They're, they're about to file their S1. They're entertaining, um, you know, selling the company. Um, quite frankly, because, you know, these things work best when there's a lot of future appreciation on the table while the company is still private. What is your vision for Liquid? And uh, do you see like uh, any geographical expansion into maybe offering the service in Asia or Europe? Or do you look look at yourself and see you're raising a bigger fund going forward? Yeah. Um, so we, we have plans in, in our roadmap to, to continue expanding. If you, if you kind of step back and, and, and look at what we're doing very, very broadly, what we're doing is, is, is we have an asset back transaction, right? There, 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 there's a certain amount of value locked up in a private security and we're, we're providing liquidity. And it's all about what is the value of that asset and how much are we willing to advance against that? And when you think of it in that broad of a sense, there's applications, you know, certainly beyond just helping people in private you know, employees and entrepreneurs and private companies, you know, get liquidity and exercise options. The structure that we have created, uh, which is quite unique, um, and actually has become the industry standard, it can apply to any private asset. So there, 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 you know, there's expansion in, in application, and then there's expansion out of North America. So we, we have done transactions, um, you know, with, with individuals that are, no longer in the U.S., um, we have looked at, at situations um, working with companies and and, and their employees um, that are not based in the U.S. So there there could be a geographical expansion that's in our roadmap and an expansion in the the types of situations where where our our solution would apply. Well, no expansion can be done without the right people. So is Liquid Stock looking to hire? If yes, what is that you look for in potential employees? Yeah, we, we are always looking for good people. Um, you know, we, we continue to expand uh, as we raise, you know, um, more and more funds. Um, and there's certainly subsequent funds you know, down down the road. We don't want to define our, um, our, our in, in staffing needs 
really just by asset growth. You know, we're just looking for really great motivated people that like working with individuals um, and developing relationships with entrepreneurs and helping them solve problems. Because at the end of the day, it's the relationship that is the, the, the most important component here. And part of part of building that relationship is transacting in, in a straightforward and ethical manner and only only really providing solutions that you know, provide a win for both parties. The, the, these types of transactions are, are very different than somebody just selling their shares, right? It, it, it's, you know, sell, selling your shares is a zero-sum game, <laughs> right? It, you know, buyer wants the lowest price, seller wants the highest price. Somebody's going to, you know, benefit at the expense of the other. And, it's, um, and these types of transactions are very different um, because both parties have risk. Both parties stand to do better at the end of the day if, if what everybody hopes will happen, expects will happen, happens. Um, so the interest, the interests are quite, interests are quite aligned. One thing that I would love to get your take on is what do you think are some of the most hottest or like rising segments in fintech, and what do you think are a bit overhyped or overcrowded right now? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We we um we take a different view of it. We're so focused on the on the company itself. You know, as opposed, and and we have worked with 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 many with many fintech companies, but even if you you know could look at that um, segment of the market and say, wow, you know, valuations have really gotten ahead of themselves. There are still fantastic companies at reasonable valuations that have great prospects in the future. So we we, we try not to confine our thinking to, hey, this sector is overvalued relative to this one that's undervalued. Um, you know, it, it's really about finding the right opportunities, um, being somewhat sector agnostic, if you will. Um, it's really about the, the individual, individual under, underlying company. You can make the case more broadly that, you know, a lot of private asset values had gotten ahead of themselves, you know, and a lot of that was exposed, uh, you know, kind of leading into this recent downturn. And if you just simply compare, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, kind of revenue multiples, um, you know that were being paid uh, in, in private assets. You know, relative to their to their public comps. You know, there's they're they're, they're somewhat out of line. But it's just the nature of of, of the private markets. Valuations, you know, tend to and changes tend to move more slowly. Clearly, relative to the to the public markets. Um, and that's not to say that private companies have got a very high valuation, uh, be they fintech companies or or others. You know, prior to this downturn, won't be in a position to support that valuation here going forward. So it's a, it's a fascinating market. The last segment, I love to introduce you as a person more to our listeners. So I do like to do a round of rapid fire questions. So what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? Fact about me that most people don't know um, is that when I, when I still had time on my hands, I was a, an accomplished jazz trombone player. How Just did like, that happen and how did that fall off? <laughs> It, it happened because when I was in elementary school, I was forced to pick an instrument and the trombone looked cool. And um, I, I just really grab it. I just I, I just love music in all its various forms. I, I think that goes hand in hand with with math. <laughs> and um, I, I just kept it up um, through my high school years and, and, and a little bit a little bit in college. Um, I, I'd be very rusty right now, uh, but I do have plans to when I have some more time on my hands, back, get back into it. What are some of the leap of faiths that you made in your career so far? By far, the biggest one was sticking with the development of this of this particular niche business. Um, and, and by my way of thinking, it, it, it's it's 
I think it's very hard to be successful unless you're going to commit and be and be all in. And I think to me that is that is the leap of faith. Um, and I've I've described it to others like you know you got you got to burn your boats. <laughs> Yeah, like the early explorers, you know, they come to a new continent and the, you know, the captain would set the ship on fire because there's, and, and, and there's no return. Right. Um, and I think you have to, you have to make that leap of faith. Um, and then when, when times are challenging, cause it's not a, it's not a smooth and easy road. You're really just pushing a heavy rock up the hill every single day. And sometimes it rolls back a little bit and, you know, you've got to, you've got to just keep recommitting, um, and just get back to the, why is this important? Why does it make sense? Um, and keep pushing hard. Um, you know, what's, what's become liquid stock today is for me become the, is really the culmination over, over 20 years of effort. And who have been your strongest support systems over these 20 years? Oh, uh, no, number one, my family, um, you know, my wife, my children, um, you know, my, my, my other, my other, my other family members, but then just, um, you know, my, my, the network that's been built over the years, and you know, people people say it a lot. Oh, relationships are really important, but they they are the most critical thing. It, it's the one lasting thing that you can you can develop. And I, I would encourage you know listeners that are starting their careers just to ju- just to focus on that network and continue to build it, and you know, just just grow those relationships um, because that is the support network over time. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Okay, it's going to be a tie. You know, I have to, I have to go with Milton Friedman, Chicago economist, and Warren Buffett, and, and I'm sure that's a common one. But I think those two would be a, a tie for me. I mean, that's as old school as you can get with the choices, but that's nice. <laughs> for my final question, what does success look like for you and for Liquid Stock? Yeah, continuing on the on the path and trajectory, uh, you know that that we're on. You know, I mentioned this. This is a culmination of where we are today of of twenty years of effort. There's just um, so much satisfaction in seeing this niche that was created years ago continue to grow and others enter the market. Um, it's it's just very professionally and personally satisfying. Um, you know, so 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 success. You know, is just continued expansion of the business. Um, continued adoption of, of, of the benefit and, and the need for the types of um, solutions that we, we provide people. Um, and as we mentioned before, just the expansion um, of, of, of the scope of, you know, where the business is today to, to where it can go, where it can go in the future. Well, thank you so much, Bob. Thank you for being here and thank you for sharing about your journey. It was great to have you on the podcast. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me and really enjoyed our, our time here together. you for listening to today's episode of the what in fintech podcast if you like the show then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review it means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast and find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at what in fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.